Well, good morning. Can I just say before I actually come to this passage that I want to look at this morning, I don't know if I'm going to be speaking to, this is a word for people here this morning, or for somebody who's maybe listening at home, but when God repeats a passage the way he's done this morning, by repeating Psalm 95, pay attention to that, because it's more than coincidence. I don't know if you're familiar with the story of Joseph. Uh, in the book of Genesis, Pharaoh had two dreams and Joseph interpreted those dreams because they had the same meaning. And we often overlook that Joseph then said there's a spiritual principle behind that. He said that when God has given the dream twice, it means that he is definitely going to do it and he is going to do it soon. And the reason why I mention this is because when Mark read it the second time, I suddenly realised I'm going to have to go home and read that psalm because that's the third time this morning I've heard that. When Lorraine and I were driving into work this morning, we had the radio on. Ian White was singing a psalm. Now, I didn't know it was Ian White, but I immediately thought to myself, that's a psalm, that's probably Ian White, and lo and behold, it turns out it was. And I didn't realise until this morning when I've heard Psalm 95 being read twice, that Ian White was singing Psalm 95. So there's clearly something in that psalm, whether it's for me, whether it's for Lorraine, whether it's for somebody here, but there's clearly something in that psalm that God wants to say to somebody this morning. So, having said that, let's start and look now at what I believe God wants us to say um, this morning. Last week was Resurrection Sunday, and... um, so therefore, it seems to me that the, the most obvious passage to look at in Scripture is an incident that happened the Sunday after the very first Resurrection Sunday. So we're going to look at John chapter 20. And the verses we're really interested in is when Jesus meets the disciples a second time, um, which happens in verses 24 to um, 29. But to give us a bit of a wider context, we're going to start at verse 19, and we're going to read um, to the end of this chapter. So John chapter 20, starting at verse 19. When it was evening on that first day of the week, this is Resurrection Sunday, when it was evening on that first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because they feared the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his side, so the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. After saying this, he breathed on them and he said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas called the twin One of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were telling him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, If I don't see the marks of the nails in his hand, and put my finger into the marks of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. A week later, his disciples were indoor again, 
and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. Thomas responded to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said, Because you have seen, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of the disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may know that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is more than just words on a page, but we thank you that it's powerful, um, that it's um, transforming, that it's healing. So we pray now that as we spend some time thinking about this passage that we'll not just look back to something that happened 2,000 years ago but we pray that your word will speak to us that it will do something in us and through us today as we find how your word is relevant for us today in Jesus name Amen As I said Uh, Thomas is defined by um, this passage, particularly verses um, 24 um, to 29. Um, And because of this passage, Thomas is very often dubbed and has always been saddled with the name Doubting Thomas um, because of this passage. But this morning, as we look at this passage, I want us to see there's actually more to Thomas than just doubt And as we see and understand a bit more about who Thomas is, what I also hope is we'll actually see that that actually we can understand and we can relate to Thomas and we can actually see more of Thomas than us than perhaps we either realised or perhaps we might even be comfortable with. In the, the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, Thomas is just listed in the credits, if I can put it like that. He's just one name in the roll call of the 12 disciples. But it's not until we come to John's Gospel that that Thomas actually finally gets a speaking role. The first time that he gets to speak, um, we find his words are recorded in John chapter uh, 11. And the background is that Jesus has just been told that one of his closest friends, a man called Lazarus, has died. And Jesus, just as people are paying respect just now to Prince Philip, Lazarus says, we need to go to Judea, which is where Lazarus lived, to go and see him. Now the disciples weren't too keen on this idea because they had left Judea because the people that lived in that area, the people who lived round about Lazarus, were hostile to Jesus. And when I say hostile, that's a bit of an understatement. Um, Previously they had tried to throw Jesus off a cliff and they tried to stone him. So you can understand why the disciples aren't too keen on the idea that Jesus says we're going back to Judea to see Lazarus and see his family. And they are trying to talk him out of it. And the only one of the disciples that's prepared to speak up and support Jesus in his decision is Thomas. 
And so he says in um, John chapter 11, verse 16, it says, Thomas the twin said to his fellow disciples, let's go so that we may die with him. That is such a wonderfully negative statement that you think that, that Thomas really should be made an honorary Scotsman and declared the patron saint of Scotland. He's actually the patron saint of India, but I'll come to that in a wee minute. But those words, let's go with him so that we can die with him, on the surface, as I said, they, they look depressing and defeated, but in actual fact, they're actually words of loyalty and courage. Because Thomas is in effect is saying, if Jesus is going to go into danger, then he's not going to go into danger alone. I don't know about the rest of you, but I'm going with him. The second time that Thomas speaks up is a few uh, chapters later in John chapter 14. And the context there is that Jesus is talking to his disciples in between the Last Supper and before he is betrayed and before the trial and before the crucifixion. He's in that in-between space. But Jesus knows what is going to come. He knows the events that lie ahead. And so he's trying to prepare the disciples for that. And so he says to the disciples that he is going to his father's house to prepare a place for them. And when he's done that, he will return for them. And he says, because I'm going to the father, you know where I'm going and you know the way. And Thomas is the one that, that speaks up. Uh, Jesus uh, speaks up and he says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Now, I don't believe for a minute that Thomas was the only one out of the 12 disciples at this point sitting, scratching his head, wondering, where's Jesus going? How's he going to get there? How are we supposed to know how to get there? But Thomas is the only one that's actually prepared to speak up and to ask the question. Asking questions doesn't make you stupid. Not asking questions guarantees you stay stupid. So, Thomas asked this question, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And because Thomas is prepared to speak up instead of just sitting silent, nodding his head without a clue, Jesus is able to to say one of the most powerful statements in the Gospels. Jesus told him, speaking to Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will also know the Father. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. So in actual fact, what we learn about Thomas, just from these two passages, is that, that Thomas is actually someone who is brave, who is loyal, who is dependable, who apparently is not afraid to ask questions, and someone who is willing to learn. And all of that makes his behaviour even stranger when we come to chapter 20, the passage that we're most familiar with. We're told that on the evening of Jesus' resurrection that Thomas wasn't with the other disciples. And I wonder 
why that was the case because we're told that the other disciples had gathered together and locked themselves behind doors because they were afraid of the people round about them they all gathered together for security for protection for comfort and yet Thomas didn't and I wonder if maybe that was because Thomas was so confused about what happened to Jesus that Jesus' death was so unexpected that Thomas maybe had taken himself off somewhere to try and sort it out in his own head, that perhaps he was so grief-stricken by the death of Jesus that he just couldn't figure out. Jesus had said so much about, about being God's anointed, God's chosen one, about being God's son, about how he had come to teach people how to follow God and how to live the right way. How does that all make sense when Jesus now is dead? So maybe Thomas is away trying to figure these things out the first time Jesus comes to meet the disciples. But Thomas then refuses to accept the witness of his fellow, his fellow disciples. I find it quite funny actually when you read the, the previous verses, Jesus has just given these disciples the authority and the responsibility of going and telling people about him so that they can put faith in him. And here are these disciples having problems convincing one of their own that Jesus is alive. But this is Thomas, and when you read him, and the, the translation we use today actually really gets across the force of what Thomas says. He doesn't just say, I can't believe, or I won't believe. He actually says, unless I see the nails, the nail prints, and the, the, the wound in his side, I will never believe. It's really emphatic. It's almost as if Thomas is digging in. He's not prepared to accept ten men at this point telling him, we have seen the Lord, plus Mary and the other women from the tomb. He's not prepared to accept their word. And this is why it looks as if Thomas's defining characteristic is doubt. But think about this for a, reason, for a second. When Jesus came to the disciples the week before when Thomas wasn't there, we're told that he, Jesus himself, showed them his hands and he pointed to the wound in his side. Whether the disciples asked to see them or whether Jesus simply offered to show the wounds, we don't know. But what we are told is that Jesus showed the other disciples the nail prints and the wound in his side. So if Thomas is going to be an apostle, someone who is given the responsibility of being an eyewitness to the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. He needs to have exactly the same experience as the other disciples. They can say to Thomas, we have seen the Lord. Thomas needs to be able to say to other people, I have seen the Lord. I haven't just heard it secondhand from other people. I have seen the Lord. So in actual fact, Thomas is just asking that he should be given the same experience as the other disciples. So the second visit a week later, 
with Thomas this time present, it's practically a replay of the week before. The disciples are gathered together. They're in a room where they've locked all the doors because, again, they're still afraid of what is going to be the response of the people around about them. The same people that tried to throw Jesus off a cliff, the same people who tried to stone Jesus, the same people who ultimately crucified Jesus. Jesus appears in that locked room. The locked doors are no barrier to Jesus. They don't keep him out. Jesus immediately gives them the same greeting and the same blessing of peace. And then I wonder how Thomas felt when Jesus repeats almost word for word the words that he had spoken uh, previously to him. Put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. It's almost like Jesus had been listening in to that conversation between Thomas and the disciples. And Thomas's response is immediate. My Lord and my God. And again, we undersell, Peter, uh, we undersell Thomas here because we're so fixed in our head about him being doubting Thomas. That declaration, my Lord and my God, is the very first time that any of the disciples truly address and recognize who Jesus is. Because previously Jesus asked the question, who do people say that I am? And the disciples said, well, we've, we've heard that uh, folk are saying that you are a teacher, that you're a prophet. And then Jesus said to them, and who do you say that I am? And at this point, there are 11 disciples all kind of looking down at their feet and humming and hawing. You've been in that situation, somebody asks a question and the room goes quiet, wondering who's going to be the first person to speak up. And Peter speaks up and he says, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ, the Son of God. But Thomas's declaration goes beyond that. You are God. And a few weeks ago when we were looking at the question of who is Jesus, Mark taught about the, the fact that Jesus is the God-man. He is God in a human form, comes so that we can see and hear and understand exactly who he is. Thomas is the first person to go beyond the idea of Jesus being a prophet or a teacher or something else and to recognise that they are in the presence of God himself. And Jesus' response to that isn't a rebuke to Thomas, but it's a promise of blessing. Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That's a promise of blessing to you and to me, all of us who have come to faith, not because we have seen Jesus with our own eyes or touched the nail prints or touched the wound, but we have accepted the witness of all those who have come before us and said, we have met Jesus. Jesus is alive and he's real. And then John takes 
Thomas's words, my Lord and my God, and he uses them as the springboard to sum up what his whole gospel is about. He says that Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wants people to see Jesus for who he really is and to realise, like Thomas, that he is God become a human being. And the opening words of his gospel actually say, in the beginning was the Word, this is Jesus, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But to all who did receive him, again speaking out of Jesus, he gave them the right to be children of God to those who believed in his name. We don't have time this morning to, to look at why does John call Jesus the word. Let's just for quickness say that what John's trying to say is that Jesus is God's last word to the world. His perfect word. God has got nothing more to say about who he is and what he's like other than we look at Jesus So, what do we learn today about doubt from Thomas? Well, the first thing that uh, I want to say is that doubt is not a sin. Doubt is actually a very common thing. There's probably very few of us, if any of us, here today or listening to the broadcast that at some point have not had doubts or questions about our faith and about what we believe. And when you look at the Bible, the Bible actually encourages not to hide doubt away, but to ask questions. So, for instance, if you look at the Psalms, the Psalms are full of places where people are saying, you know, where are you, God? Why aren't you answering prayer? Why are you letting evil things happen to good people? You know, why is this happening to me? I don't deserve this. Why, why is this happening? And I want to respectfully suggest that even Jesus had doubts. Because we see that in the garden, just before he was betrayed, it says that three times he prayed and he said, if there's a way out of this, if this cup of suffering can be taken away from me, then please do. But not my will, but yours be done. There was doubt there. But there was also dedication. You know, I know it's coming. I don't particularly want to do it. If there's an alternative, I'd much rather take it. But if that's the only way, but does it have to be the only way? That was the question Jesus was asking in the garden. So doubt is not sinful. Um... But it was, as I said, so therefore God deals gently with doubt. It's almost as if that second visit was specifically set up for Thomas's benefit. Sin is not, sorry, doubt is not sinful, but doubt can lead to disobedience, which is sin. Which is why the second thing is that doubt can be damaging. Because doubt can become the breeding ground for sin. Um, when, because doubt isolates us from our other Christians, just as Thomas, for a while, stayed away from the rest of the disciples, 
Doubt can be damaging because it isolates us from God. We don't actually, like Thomas, go to God and ask the questions. We don't address to God our prayers. We don't turn to God's word and look for answers to the doubts and the questions that we we have got. Satan wants to weaponize doubt. And that's why, from the Garden of Eden, speaking to Adam and Eve, to today, Satan's first words are always, did God really say? Satan wants to use and exploit doubt. Doubt can not only cause us to question God, or to question other Christians, doubt can actually make us question ourselves. Is what I believe really true? Does God really exist? Can I trust the Bible? So, doubt can be damaging. But finally, I also want to say that doubt can be transforming. I mentioned earlier on that Thomas is actually the patron saint of India, much as he deserves to be the patron saint of Scotland. And the reason for that is because tradition says that Thomas took the gospel to India, where he died by ironically being run through with a spear. Thomas the Doubter became so convinced because he saw with his own eyes that Jesus was alive, that he refused to back down. He would never again would question his faith. He would never again question his commitment to his Lord and to his God to the point that he was prepared to lay down his life and die for what he believed and what he now knew to be true. And so Thomas is, rather than being dubbed Doubting Thomas in India, Thomas is, even today, still respected and revered because he brought Christianity to India. And as I said, that's the whole point of John's Gospel, that God has given us the responsibility of sharing the good news about Jesus, of taking God's word to people and saying, this is real, this is not just stories, this is not just history, this is real. Jesus is alive today as he was 2,000 years ago. God wants us to have the same unshakable faith in him that Thomas had. And so John, writing in another letter later on, says, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Notice the Bible says that you have eternal life, not that you will have eternal life. The Bible wants us to have no doubt That when we put our trust in Jesus, that's it. We are forgiven. We are accepted. Our lives have changed beyond all recognition. We now belong to God. We no longer belong to Satan. That we have eternal life. That our future, our eternal future, from the minute we put our trust in Jesus, and even if we question that commitment later on and we have doubts, God has no doubt that we belong to him and we will always belong to him. 
So I want to ask you this morning, again, whether you are here in church or whether you are watching the live stream or maybe you're watching a recording later on, where are you this morning in terms of what you believe? Where are you in terms of doubt? And maybe this morning you are in that really good place where you don't have any doubts. You know that your Redeemer lives. You know that Jesus is alive. You know that he has accepted you and that you are forgiven. And that you have this eternal life that the Bible speaks about. If that's where you are this morning, great. I'm glad to hear it. But I want to suggest to you that maybe there's someone, again, somebody here or maybe somebody at home that needs the certainty that you have. They need to borrow it or they need to lean on it. So there's somebody that, that needs to to speak to you about their own doubts, somebody that needs you to pray with them, to help them because they don't have the certainty that you've got today. So if you have no doubts this morning, give thanks and make use of it and help somebody else. Because maybe this morning you are that person that needs the help and the support of others. Maybe there's something that has happened, maybe something that you are going through. It could be, especially in this time, it could be that you're ill. It could be that somebody that you love is ill or somebody that you love has died because of COVID or because of something else. There could be some situation, uh, whether it's relationship, whether it's finance or something else. And you're asking this question, why has this happened? Why has God let this happen? Why isn't God doing something about this situation? Why isn't God sorting this out? If that's somebody here this morning, then I want to encourage you that there are people here that you can speak to. You might not know me, you might not be comfortable speaking to me, but I want to encourage you to go and find someone that you are comfortable speaking to, whether it's Mark as the pastor, whether it's uh, Paul or TJ as the elders, Someone, there has to be someone here that you trust, that you can confide in, that you can be honest about, that you know won't slap you over the head and treat your doubts as trivial and unimportant or wrong, but someone that will care for you and love you and take that time. They might not have the answers to your questions. I'm not going to put that pressure on myself or anyone else this morning. But just someone that will take your time and say, okay, this is happening. I understand exactly why you've got questions. And let's pray that, that God will provide answers. That he might not take the problem away, but he'll give you the strength and the patience and the endurance to be able to deal with it until you come out the other side. Until God takes this experience that you're having and uses it that you can help someone else who has the same experience later on. If you're watching this online, then if you're watching the live stream, the opportunity is there for you to ask someone to pray with you. And if you're watching a recording, there are links for the, the, the church's social media links that, again, you can ask someone to pray with you. You can ask questions. And we might not be able to give you an immediate response, but we'll try to give you an answer, but most importantly, as I said, we can pray with you, that God will speak to you, that that sense, the first sense that Satan wants to, to have is that God has left you, abandoned you. No, 
we want to pray with you and give you that assurance that no matter what you feel, despite your feelings, God has made a promise that he will never leave us or abandon us. And God doesn't break his promises. Maybe this morning you're in that place where you've heard lots of things about Jesus. You know the claims that Jesus has made, that he is God. That his death wasn't an accident, it wasn't a defeat, it wasn't a disaster. But believe it or not, it was God's intent and will that Jesus should die so that we could be forgiven. And you've heard the testimony that Jesus is not some dead hero, but he is alive and risen saviour. He is both Lord and God. He can't be one or the other. You can't call him Lord and not recognise him as God. And you can't call him God and not recognise that he is Lord, that you need to submit your life to him and be obedient to him. And maybe this morning those doubts are, 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 are maybe there. Can I really trust this Jesus? Can I really get to know this Jesus? And again, I want to encourage you don't just have those thoughts in your head, but speak to someone that can show you the last steps to making the same understanding as Thomas and to see Jesus for who he really is Lord and God who wants to come into your life and change and transform you. Will you let doubt be uh, damaging or transforming? Are you willing this morning to go from doubt to dedication? Let's pray.